this evening in your Bibles, we would invite you to turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 3 through 5 in your pew Bible. You can find that on page 1390. After we read from that, we'll also be reading from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 17. And in your Forms and Prayers book, uh, you can find this reference on page 218. As you find those respective references, just a word of explanation. Uh, when we preach, when we proclaim the Word of God, we, we always do so, we trust, uh, and we pray that this is true for the years that lie ahead, we always do so from the very Word of God. Preaching must always be just that, preaching the Word of God. Uh, but there are a couple of different ways in which you can proclaim the Word of God. And there are such things known as what we call expository sermons. Uh, we typically have those in the morning here at Covenant, uh, where we take a particular passage of Scripture and we seek to expound, that is to explain the meaning of that particular passage, and then also apply that particular passage. And in expository sermons, we typically go through a series, uh, one section of an epistle or one section of a book after another, and we seek to limit ourselves very closely to that specific text. Uh, another legitimate way of preaching is what we might call topical sermons. Uh, we typically do that in connection with the Heidelberg Catechism. We're still preaching the Bible, but we're preaching the Bible more topically, uh, dealing with uh, a variety of doctrines, and we use the Heidelberg Catechism because we believe that the Heidelberg Catechism faithfully summarizes the Word of God and is a good and a profitable guide as we cover various topics. Uh, the topics that we are covering in recent weeks uh, are the steps of the humiliation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the incarnation, uh, the sufferings, the death, the burial, the descent into hell. This evening, we make a slight transition. We're still looking at the person, but more specifically, the work of Jesus Christ. But having gone through the, the topics of His steps of humiliation, this evening we begin looking at the topics of the steps of exaltation, beginning with the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You'll notice that I've chosen from the beginning here to only read three verses uh, that's not because we plan to only deal with those three verses. Being a topical sermon, we'll be referencing a variety of other biblical passages as well. And so we would encourage you, if you are inclined to do so, uh, to keep your Bible open as we engage in this topical sermon. But we read uh, now from 1 Peter 1, verse 3, 4, and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We then turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 17, which has one question, question 45, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And the answer first, by His resurrection, He has overcome death so that He might make us share in the righteousness He obtained for us by His death. Second, by His power, we too are already raised to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a wonderful opportunity this evening to pause from the busyness of our life, 
from all of the anxieties that perhaps accompany the busyness of modern-day life. We have the opportunity to pause from the 24-7 news cycles. We have an opportunity to pause uh, from those who would encourage us to be given to fear, to doubt, to dismay, and we have the opportunity to reflect upon the glorious reality of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this, dearly beloved Christians, is our hope. This is our confidence that Christ, upon the completion of His work of humiliation, did not succumb to the powers of death, did not succumb to the powers of the grave, but at the appointed time on the third day arose triumphantly in the glorious resurrection, whereby by His divine power, along, of course, with the Father and the Spirit, uh, the human nature of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, body and soul, were not only reunited, but also lifted up to a new level of exaltation. And of course, in future weeks, we'll also have the opportunity to reflect upon the death of our Lord Jesus Christ in connection with Good Friday, and then the resurrection in connection with Easter, and then in due time, uh, the day of Ascension and the day of Pentecost. But we come this evening in the time allotted to us to consider the truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But by way of introduction, I just want to emphasize uh, that all that we know about the resurrection, we know based upon the authority and the revelation of Holy Scripture. We are dealing here with another element of the supernatural. And I say this perhaps frequently, but I do so purposefully. Our faith is based upon the Word of God. And I want to especially remind our young people and those who perhaps are at colleges or are planning to go to universities, never forget that the Christian faith is based upon the testimony of the Word of God. The Word of God that is absolutely authoritative, given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, testifies about the reality of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the Word of God is not just simply concerned with verifying the historicity of the resurrection. It is concerned with that, but it's not only concerned with that. And you notice that our catechism captures this spirit when it doesn't simply come and ask us, do you believe that Christ rose from the dead? But it comes and it asks us, well, what does it benefit you? What does it benefit you that Christ rose from the dead? Indeed, the historical truth of the resurrection is affirmed, but the catechism wants to go further and ask, what does it benefit you? And then, of course, with a structure that uh, a preacher cannot ignore, there is a triple benefit that is described. And we make that underneath our theme, redemption through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, the structure for this evening's sermon, noticing the first benefit, Jesus Christ was raised for our justification. And then secondly, Jesus Christ was raised for our sanctification. And then thirdly, Jesus Christ was raised for our glorification. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ benefit us? It benefits us by way of, first of all, our justification, then secondly, our sanctification, and then thirdly, our glorification. 
In connection then with it being raised for our justification, if you are so uh, inclined, you look at Romans 4, uh, verse 23 and 25. I uh, hear the Apostle Paul uh, explains this benefit that Jesus Christ's historical resurrection from the dead accomplished uh, our justification. Verse 23, 24, and 25 of Romans chapter 4. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be, that is, the it is the righteousness of God, which comes through the work of Jesus Christ received by faith. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And, and the word justification just simply means to be declared righteous and in full conformity, having satisfied all of the requirements of the law. And of course, we understand, if we rightly know ourselves, that we in and of ourselves, we cannot satisfy all the requirements of the law. If these words find the ears of anyone who may be tempted to think that if I can just do a little bit better this week, then my standing with God will be better— my friend, you do not understand the holiness of God nor the sinfulness of your own self. How can we be justified with God? Only through the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, including His resurrection, whereby He openly displayed the reality of conquering the power of the grave and of the death. And by doing so, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you might say, is the receipt that all the righteousness of God has been satisfied on our account. He went down into the grave as He bore our sins upon Himself. But thanks be to God, He did not remain in the grave. He did not succumb to the powers of the grave, but He emerged triumphantly and victoriously. You might say, with the receipt that payment had been fully accomplished. Now, maybe we don't always do this, but sometimes, especially if it's a rather large purchase, you want to make sure you get the receipt. I suppose if you go to Smokey Row and you order a cup of coffee, and they ask, you know, would you like your receipt? If it's only a couple of dollars, you might say, I don't need my receipt. Now, but purchases that are much more substantial, you want some verification. You want proof. Uh, you want something in your hand that you can say, look, I've, I've paid for this. This is mine. And you can think of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as that receipt. You wonder, perhaps, sometimes, are my sins really atoned? Are my sins really forgiven? Am I really right with God? Well, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ says, yes. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, then the resurrection says you are fully righteous. Your sins have totally been dealt with definitively once and for all in the accomplished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ was raised for our justification by overcoming death, but also by applying righteousness. It's vital that Jesus Christ in His human nature really die. We looked at that last Sunday evening. But it's also vital that Jesus Christ in His human nature is alive, so that he not only can obtain salvation, but also can apply salvation. Uh, here we have in mind Romans 8, verse 34, 
Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So where is Jesus Christ now according to his human nature? Not in the grave, not in the bondage of death, not in the cold tomb, but on the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing there? He's there so that he may make intercession for us. You could say it this way, we need a Savior, yes, who died, but we need a Savior who also lives, who can then apply the reality of the redemption that He has accomplished unto our hearts. This takes place through a double imputation. This takes place through regeneration. This takes place through the gift of faith, the exercise of faith. But that's our second point, and before we get there, I want to try to illustrate this. Uh, some of you know that we, we have a, a pond, I guess you call it a farm pond, although we don't live on a farm, but we have a pond in our uh, side yard, and a couple weeks ago I noticed that after the ice was gone, uh, th- there were birds out there, and I watched them, and uh, I wasn't sure exactly what, what birds they were, perhaps it's by ignorance. Uh, my wife and I have done some research. Well, she did most of the research. Apparently, uh, they're, they're goslings, little geese. Uh, but that's not the first thing I noticed about them. Uh, I, I was looking out the window one morning, and, and there's probably about four of them on the pond, and, and I saw a couple of them go down. And boys and girls, you probably have, have seen this. You know, they, they, they swim down. They're, they're underneath the water. And at first I thought, I wonder what happened to them. And they were down underneath the water for quite some time. I thought, well, I, I've heard there's a snapping turtle in that pond. I go, I wonder, I wonder if the snapping turtle dragged them down. And I, I began to feel a little bit sympathetic for the little gooselings, goslings, however you pronounce it. And I thought, oh, that's too bad. But then lo and behold, and maybe boys and girls, you can guess what happened. Up they came. And they did it again and again. Down they went. And I, I would count, and it'd be 10, 15 seconds. And then up they came again. And, and when they came up, it proved that they had not succumbed to death, they were alive. Now, I know that's a very, very silly illustration, you might say, uh, but with a certain sense of concern the disciples watched the body of our Lord Jesus Christ be placed into the grave. But the glory of the gospel, yes, includes the fact that His body was laid into the grave, but the glory of the gospel is that He emerged forth from the grave, and He lives. And because He lives, I live. I spiritually live. And that brings us into our second point. Jesus Christ was raised for our sanctification. Now, sanctification is the work of redemption as applied to our condition, to the condition of our soul. And we understand that by nature we are dead in sins and in trespasses. By nature we are spiritually dead. But thanks be to God, by the virtue of the resurrection, Jesus Christ has obtained Eternal life, new life, not for himself. He, of course, always has life. But he has, as a mediator, obtained spiritual life 
for those whom have been given unto him, that having emerged, having accomplished the work of redemption, he might then ascend into heaven and might send forth the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit might come upon our souls and grant the gift of new life, grant the gift of regeneration. A dead Savior cannot make sinners alive, but an alive Savior can. And he does. And this is what is described, uh, for example, uh, in Romans 6, verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This also is what Jesus Christ spoke of when he interacted with Nicodemus in John 3. Uh, This being born from above, this being born by the water, this being born by the Spirit. This new spiritual life that comes into our dead souls and, you know, the old language is is quickened but makes it alive. And so it's not just simply a quibbling over the historical truthfulness of the resurrection. Of course, there has to be that understanding and that belief, but There's the spiritual necessity of the resurrection of Christ because there is the need for the resurrection of our soul. And I'm afraid sometimes that we we dot all the I's and we cross all the T's in our theology, but do we really understand the importance of the spiritual rebirth? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not implying that you and I presently in our present condition need to be reborn. We believe that we have faith. We use the judgment of charity. But what I'm referring to is the fact that there has to be, at some point, whether it's in the mother's womb or whether it's in a person's infant years, whether it's in a person's toddler years, and and maybe, although it might be the exception in the covenant community, maybe it's when one is older, in their teenage years, or if they, you know, to some extent are a prodigal, maybe it's in their 20s, maybe in their 30s, but we have to understand the importance, the necessity of the new birth, of regeneration, of being born again. And how is a person born again? It's not simply by moral persuasion. It's not simply by uh, godly parents engaging in their faithful covenantal labors of instructing the child in the aforesaid doctrine, although that's absolutely necessary. But how does a person receive the new birth? By virtue of Christ. By virtue of the Holy Spirit Uh, applying that spiritual life that Jesus Christ has obtained into their heart and into their soul so that a change takes place. A change takes place not only in their heart, but also in their mind, also in their will, also in their affections. They pass from spiritual death to spiritual life underneath the agency of, of the work of the Holy Spirit so that the resurrection life then lives within that person. And this can also be then applied, more broadly speaking, uh, to the life of the Christian church. Because the agent, and this is why, of course, the the resurrection of Jesus Christ is closely tied to His ascension, uh, and then also uh, Pentecost, because 
We can't stop with any one of these steps of exaltation. You need to go all the way through them because it's important, it's vitally important that the Holy Spirit then pours out this new life into the hearts of the church. And that's why you find in Acts, which really is the, the book that continues to describe the things that Jesus Christ does in the salvation of His people. He does it now from heaven, of course. That's why in the book of Acts you find constant references to the work of the Holy Spirit. And if we would desire to see the reviving of spiritual life, then there ought to be the understanding that what we need, what we desperately need, is the work of the Holy Spirit within us and among us, bringing to bear upon our own hearts and bringing to bear upon our own minds and our own wills and our own affections that new life, that eternal life, that resurrection life, that we might know the Father that we might know the Son, that we might know the Holy Spirit. And this ought to motivate us uh, to give ourselves uh, to zealous and earnest prayer. That God would rend the heavens, as the prophet said, and that He would come down. And that the Holy Spirit would bring this life that Jesus Christ has obtained and would apply it to our hearts and to our relationships and to our marriages and to our vocational activities and to our congregational life and to our engagement even in evangelism and mission work and, and, and conferences and, and books and workshops and all of these are good. But apart from the Holy Spirit, the prophet will be nothing but with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit, the prophet will be enormous. And so, I ask myself and I ask you also, Jesus Christ resurrected and raised for our sanctification. Do we understand the importance of this benefit? raised for our justification, raised for our sanctification, then also thirdly raised for our glorification. We think here of 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The Apostle Paul perhaps puts it even more sharply, if Christ is not raised from the dead, everything we're doing is absolutely futile. That's why for, well, there's a number of reasons, but I, I can never understand liberal theology that denies the historical reality of the resurrection because if Christ is not raised from the dead, what are we doing? Why are we here? If Christ is not raised from the dead, what is the meaning of life? Is it just a long joke? Just a trick of some cosmic force? Is this not, in part at least, part of the reason why the world is characterized by such pointlessness? You ask the average person on the street what they're living for, it'll be something that is corruptible, I guarantee it. They might say, well, I'm living for all the pleasure in the world that I can possibly attain. Well, what are you going to do with that when death comes? Because death comes to everyone. 
Someone might say, well, I'm living for all of the material prosperity that I can get. I want to get my bank account and my investment portfolio as large as I possibly can. And what, dear sir, will that profit you on your deathbed? All of that is corruptible. Others say, well, I want to build a name for myself. I assure you, even if you are able to build a well-known name for yourself, as the scene of human history continues to unfold, you will quickly be forgotten. And so what is your comfort in life and in the prospect of death? There is a pledge Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and so the Christian knows that he or she also will be raised from the dead. And this congregation is that beautiful spiritual truth of union with Christ, of a connection, of an unbreakable connection with Christ. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but to paraphrase, I'm united to Christ, and eventually where He is, I must be also, because I'm united to Him. I'm united to Him, of course, yes, in the eternal decree, the counsel of God. I'm united to Him by faith. I'm united to Him as I've received the life that He has obtained within my soul. I'm united to Him in His death and in His resurrection. And you can think of John 14, verse 3, that that scriptural passage that has given so many saints of God unshakable confidence as they face their own death. John 14, verse 3, where Jesus Christ says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, speaking there of His death and of His resurrection, of His ascension into heaven, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself. And why? That where I am, there you may be also. This is the very essence of the covenant of grace. Where I am, you may be also. How can I, how can you, how can we know beyond all shadow of a doubt that we will dwell for all of eternity in fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by virtue of our union with Christ and by virtue of His resurrection? I will not be forgotten in the grave. And dear Christian, you will not be forgotten in the grave. Because Christ is no longer in the grave. Yes, for a time, our body will sleep in the grave. But then there will come that wonderful resurrection morning with the warm, authoritative voice of the Lord Jesus Christ when He commands the grave to be opened up. And in the twinkling of an eye, you will be transformed into eternal glory. Now there's more questions than there are answers concerning what exactly that experience of eternal life will be like. Perhaps you remember the Apostle Paul was caught up to the third heaven. And rather than writing down what he saw, he said he wasn't able to write down what he saw. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. We can say it will be glorious, and we can say it will be certain. Having put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will not be forgotten in the grave. 
This is a pledge. It's a guarantee. An absolutely dependable guarantee that is our hope. So often, maybe it's with meeting with the family before the funeral. Maybe it's at the committal graveside service. I love to simply read John 11, verse 25 and 26, and the occasion there is Lazarus has died. Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, has died. His body's been placed into the grave, even to the point of the beginnings of decomposition. And Jesus comes. And there's that question that lingers in Mary and in Martha. Why? And we talked about that last Sunday evening, and oftentimes the why surrounding an individual's death can't satisfactorily be answered by us in this life. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. That's the glory of the gospel. That's what we might call the paradox of the gospel. Even though we die, we live. Not just that our name lives on. Not just that our human achievements live on. Not just that we have some memory that lives on, but that we and our person live on, in our soul and in our body. Though we die, we live. And then Jesus goes on and he, he packs on the layers of the glorious benefits that come from his work, and he says, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. You ask, what is the benefit of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? There it is. Never dying. And to say it positively, always living. And, and this is our hope. This is our confidence. This is our comfort. This is what ought to make us different than those who walk through this life with no hope, without God. Those who are constantly downcast. Those who are constantly filled with despair. There ought to be something different about the Christian church that holds these historical truths. He lives, and we live also. And I've said this before, but wouldn't it be absolutely remarkable if tomorrow or Wednesday or Friday uh, on the job site or uh, on the sidewalks of the square in the, the town, if somebody stopped you and said, tell me, with all the news globally, nationally, locally, banks crashing, wars, rumors and wars, Famines, pestilences, flooding. Tell me, why is it that you are hopeful? Why is it that you have a spirit of optimism? And if we could then say, He lives. And I live. And so Jesus' question comes to you and to me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Yes, do you believe in the historical reality of that event, but do you believe in the sense that you place all of your hope, all of your comfort, all of your confidence in the one who is resurrected? If not, then I have to warn you that wherever you've placed your hope, it's sinking sand. But the call of the gospel still goes forth. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All who call upon him will be saved. Young and old. And, and, and maybe you're a young boy or a young girl and you're, oh boy, these big words, glorification, sanctification, justification. As a young boy or a young girl, you don't have to know the meaning of all of those words. I'm pretty confident the repentant thief on the cross would not have been able to give a working definition of justification or sanctification or glorification. He just simply hoped in Jesus Christ. He simply said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's the simple exercise of faith. That thief was a dying man. At that moment, Jesus Christ in his human nature was also a dying man. But that repentant thief saw beyond that. He knew that Jesus Christ would live. And he just simply said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Verily, verily, certainly, certainly, today you will be with me in paradise. Based upon the resurrection of the dead. And that's also the promise to all of those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though our earthly body quickly fades away. And even when the day comes when our Last breath is drawn. The promise is sure. Today you will be with me in paradise. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that even as it goes forth with the foolishness of men, it accomplishes your purposes, bringing life to your people, exalting the person and the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, once again, we ask for the blessing that only you can give. Now, we pray that as the word has gone forth, that it would not be quickly taken away uh, by the busyness and the cares and the concerns of this world. We pray that thorns and thistles might not interrupt its growth. We pray that it might not fall on hardened hearts of indifference or of defiance. But we pray that by the work of the Holy Spirit, the seed of your word might sink into our hearts and bring forth an increase in the exercises of repentance and faith to the glory of your name. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.